Hear the word of God from 1 Samuel chapter 1. It'll be on the screen or you can read in your own Bibles. Starting at verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great, speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. 
And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. This is the word of the Lord. So over the past few weeks, we've been in the book of Esther. And I hope you've learned and gathered so much during that time in the book of Esther. My prayer, if anything, is that you saw how God is working behind the scenes in the book of Esther. For the next few weeks of July, we're actually going to continue that idea that God is currently at work, that he's working behind the scenes. And so a few weeks of July into the first Sunday of August, we're going to be looking at examples of God working behind the scenes, uh, working out his purposes behind the scenes through characters in the Old Testament. And I'm really pumped about this. So we're going to stick with, we just did Esther, and then we're now going to dive into characters with the same theme of God working behind the scenes. So today is Samuel, or the birth of Samuel. Next week is my, one of my favorites because it's named after my son, or my son is named after him, Josiah. He's not named after my son, that would have been difficult. But it's King Josiah, and then after that is Daniel and my favorite names in the Bible, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. And then after that, Eric is preaching on, who's Eric preaching on? I can't remember, what was the fourth one? Elijah, that's right. So it's going to be a fun series of looking through the Old Testament, looking at this continued theme of God working behind the scenes. Most of you guys know here at Waypoint Church, we go through a whole book together. So typically, like for example, we'll go through like the book of Psalms, Old Testament, then we'll go through maybe like the book of uh, Ephesians, New Testament. And we go typically back and forth, Old Testament and New Testament, as we go through the whole book together. Starting in the fall, we're so excited, we're going to start in the book of 1 Corinthians. So it's going to be a really good time in the fall, and then starting January, we're going to go back to the Pentateuch. So we're going to get you guys, as you stick, stick with us, you're going to get to know the whole Bible. Sound good? Guys, we believed in the whole Bible, guys. I don't know about you guys, but we want, we want the Old Testament as much as the New Testament. Do you hear me? We believe in the whole thing. And we need to know the whole Bible, not just the New Testament. So, let's dive into this. This birth of Samuel and Hannah, his mother. This is a period in history that is considered the bad old days. I mean, if there was a, a period in Israelite history, in biblical history, that was considered the worst times, the bad days. It would be this period, right here, the period of the judges. The children of Israel were brought out of Egypt. So I'm setting the stage for you real quick, okay? The children were brought out of Israel, out of slavery. They've seen signs and wonders. They crossed the Red Sea. They were fed by manna from heaven. Under Moses, they crossed through the wilderness. Then under Joshua, they entered the promised land. They subjugated their enemies. They settled down in the promised land. They built homes. Everything seemed perfect. They were settled in. They were in the land that they were promised. But then things went bad. Things went bad in a hurry. This whole period was actually really bad. And why was it bad? And the Bible says it was bad because in those days, there was no king in Israel. Therefore, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. This idea that there was no king at the time, so the people of Israel decided, I'm king, I'm God, I will dictate what is right and wrong. They thought they were the ultimate and not God. But it wasn't to stay like that. 
There was a great movement of God that was initiated by a man named Samuel. So let me give you such a stage a little bit further. If you look in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 14, this is what was a part of the promised covenant. And it says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more numbered than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out of with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules I command you today. And because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock, in the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your livestock. This is a covenant promise. It's so vast. And the people of the book of Judges were not reaping the full benefits. See, this was the promise that God gave to his covenant people. He says, you, in covenant relationship with me, will receive bountiful provision. You receive bountiful relationship. But what happened was when the people went into the promised land that they were promised and given, they forgot about God. There was no king at the time. So they made themselves king and God. And what happened, and what I love is that we have this example of barrenness that symbolizes this period. We have in this period of, of darkness, of difficulty, then all of a sudden there's a woman, Hannah, who was a godly woman, but who was facing an issue of barrenness that was made prominent, if you look at the promise of the covenant, that barrenness would not be an issue any longer. This theme will be played out. You'll see this further as we go further here. So here's what I want you to do. I want to zoom into 1 Samuel, kind of like Google Earth does, and I want to zoom down. Place called Ramah in verse 1. Not too sure where that is. It could be in the west coast near Tel Aviv or it could be just a few miles north of Jerusalem. We're gonna go to a little house. Well, I don't know how little, it could be a big house. This guy seems kind of wealthy. Named, with a guy named Elkanah and his wife. His wives, I mean. Now I want to go right to that little home and I want to see what Hannah is teaching us. In my opinion, Hannah is one of the most godly women in all of scripture. She's right up there like with Mary and like the other godly women. She's amazing and not much is said about her. God's people may find themselves in difficult circumstances, and they may find themselves in difficult circumstances with no fault of their own. And what this passage teaches us today is that in such circumstances, God's grace will always prove to be sufficient to those who seek it. So the first point, the first thing that I want you guys to see is I want you guys to take a look at Hannah's desperate circumstance, all right? So let's take a look at Hannah's desperate circumstances. Elkanah and Hannah, his first wife, they're married, Elkanah is a man of some means, he can support two wives, but he's also a man of religious convictions, which comes across kind of weird because he has two wives. Is anybody else kind of weird about the fact that he has two wives, but he also wants to worship? While there are num- num- numerous examples in the Old Testament of bigamy and polygamy, it's never lifted up as a right decision. So people don't be like, oh, does this mean I can have two wives too? No. <laughs> Just in case, you're wondering. Uh, if you're curious about that, the answer is no. 
First of all, I don't know why you'd want to. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no. <laughs> the Old Testament is telling the real story of flawed and sinful people. Flawed and sinful people who still can be godly in their way. Being flawed and sinful does not mean you cannot also have godly convictions. Alkanah has two wives, but he also seems on several occasions in this passage to want to observe the ritual of worship in Shiloh on an annual basis. And this is long before Jerusalem becomes the base of the temple. So the temple is not rested in Shiloh, and there are gates and pillars spoken of here. Something of a more solid structure has, has been erected around the tabernacle at this time. So he's a godly man. He's concerned um, that Hannah fulfills her vows. He's a believer, but his life is compromised, seriously, by choosing to have two wives in the midst of it. Hannah, we're told in verse 5, seems to be his favorite. She was his first wife, and at the time of the sacrifice, he gives her a double portion because the text tells us he, lo he loved her. But she's barren. She has no children. The Lord instead has closed her womb. And he's married another girl, a younger girl, maybe a prettier girl, or at least a girl that has a fertile womb. And she's mean. She's fertile and she loves to rub it into Hannah's face. It's a desperate situation for Hannah. Here's the context, here's the scenario. This other woman's having children season after season. You know, she's just giving birth while um, Hannah's alone by herself, being put down further and further. You can imagine the trips to Shiloh, right? Let alone the conversations at the house. You know, maybe they were under the same roof. Maybe they had two little separate living areas for the whole family, one family and the other. You can see maybe one of Penina's children looking at Hannah and saying, Mammy, why doesn't she have kids? What's wrong with her? Where's her worth? Where's her children tugging at her? What, what's going on here? Penina could say, I don't know why. Maybe ask her. Maybe God's cursed her. Maybe she's an evil person. Think about Hannah, this godly woman. She's in this awful context, and Hannah, you understand, has no choice. Here in the 21st century, we're thinking, well, she could just leave him. What's going on here? No, that's, that's not what reality of the situation. She can't walk out in this marriage. How could she survive? These are desperate circumstances. She's trapped in this marriage. Hannah doesn't want to make a fuss because a sense of shame that's already would surround her. If she speaks out of these circumstances, it would speak out more of the fact that she's not able to have children. It's a mess. It's an unholy mess. It's a mess that ethically ought never have been because Elkanah should never have married a second wife. The sad reality is that we can relate to this circumstance in our culture kind of way too quickly, right? We've seen it in the media and in life over and over again, the, the wealthy man leaving his wife for the younger model. It's become so commonplace that it's almost become cliche, hasn't it? Some of you might have passed through these dreadfully dark and unpleasant circumstances yourself. Right here in the Bible, one of the great stories of the Bible, one of the great stories of the great godly women of the Bible is right here, she is in that desperate circumstance. And it might not be the exact situation, but maybe you know what it's like to feel trapped socially and financially. Maybe you feel to a lesser degree, maybe, maybe you know what it's like to be consistently put down and made to feel worthless. Maybe you know what it's like, maybe you can relate to Hannah here. She's upset, she's depressed, she's hurt. She's surrounded by all these people and in this state, Elkanah comes to her and says, in verse, verse eight, he put this on the screen, Verse 8, Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more than 10 sons to you? Now, gentlemen, let me give you some advice here. This man was a complete fool. I mean, just a complete oaf. If you don't get why and you're in a relationship, 
come and talk to me after the service. Seriously, I, I'll help you out here. This, this will be good for you. Here's Elkanah, he knows Hannah's upset and he asks her why. Actually, he knows why she, she's upset because he said it so eloquently at the end. I mean, he starts off by asking the question he already knows the answer to. What, what's wrong? Why aren't you eating? Am I, am I not worth 10 sons to you? See, he already knows why she's sad. She wants children. Then instead of understanding or empathizing, he makes it all about himself and says, hey, buck up, little lady. You have me. I'm better than 10 sons. <laughs> Don't do that, gentlemen. Do you hear me? Everybody out there, it's not a good move. Just throwing that out there. Don't make it about you. Empathize and understand, please. Hear that. You're welcome, ladies. You see the desperate state that Hannah was in. This godly woman was hurt and in longing, and in this state, she cast herself on God's mercy. See, the second, second thing I want you to notice about Hannah is one, it's her desperate situation, but two, in the state of desperation, Hannah cast herself on God's mercy. She's in Shiloh. She's made the journey for the annual feast and she's distressed and she's praying. Her lips are moving, but nothing's coming out. She's praying inwardly. She's pouring out her soul to the Lord. She makes a vow. She's actually called a Nazarite vow. It's a vow found in Numbers 9, or number 6. And she literally says, Lord, give me a son. That part you, you can understand. You can understand that part of the vow. But she also says, Lord, give me a son and I'll give him back to you. It's an incredible prayer. She says in verse 11, look on my affliction, remember me, and not forget your servant. She actually seems to be quoting Exodus 3 when God says he remembered the affliction of Israel and Egypt. She's comparing herself to those who've been trapped in slavery and in Egypt. She may well be citing that passage, Lord, you are the kind of God that looks on people's afflictions. That's the kind of God we have. God, look on my afflictions. Have pity on me. Have you ever been in that circumstance before where you have nothing to bargain with? You're in a state of complete desperation. God, in verse 18, it says, let your servant find favor in your eyes. It's a classic phrase that you find in the Old Testament. What she's asking for is grace. What Hannah's asking for is mercy. Have you ever found yourself in a circumstance where all you can say is, God, I don't deserve anything, but I need mercy. Will you have pity on me? I'm so trapped, I'm so desperate. I have nowhere else to go. God, will you have mercy? And then there's Eli. He's the high priest. He's sitting on a chair. Actually, the Hebrew word is, for, is throne. And it's significant because Eli is like the king figure here. But Eli is going to fall. Actually, he's going to fall and break his neck. And Eli is not the answer. He's, he, he thinks she's drunk. And you add insult to injury. I mean, here's this woman who's at this church and she's pouring out her heart, pleading before God and this godly woman and the high priest, you know, the, the highest up guy there, the highest person he looks up to, she's like, he thinks she's drunk. Like, oh, that stinks. I can't even do this right. I can't even pray right. The pastor, the priest thinks I'm drunk. Uh, thinks I'm a madman. I mean, that stinks, right? You're desperate, desperate before God, desperate and you come and it's like, oh, yeah, you're, are you drunk? What's wrong with you, woman? Stop drinking in the middle of the day. And she says, no, I'm not drunk. I'm just crying out in desperation. Lord, give me a son. I'll give him back to you. That's what she's saying. It's a prayer of utter selflessness. It's a prayer of unimaginable consecration, devotion to the purposes of the Lord. God, give me a son. I'll give him back to you. I'm not sure if there's a prayer quite like that in the Bible. 
When we think about what we pray for in general, this is a prayer that comes out of a heart that's entirely given over to the purposes of God. This, this is a prayer that says, God, I want a son, but that son is yours. I just, leave me a son for your purposes. Typically, most of our prayers around the fact, kind of revolve around the fact of our comfort. God, you know, give me a good job because it's, it's nice to have a good job in security. God, you know, make sure that nobody dies because I don't want to lose anybody and I don't want my heart to get hurt. This is your prayer that says, God, give me a son so that he can do your will. And that's exactly what Samuel does. I want you to get this. This is the beautiful thing. Samuel is the one who changes the period from the age of judges to the age of kings. And in this age of kings comes this covenant promise that one day there will be a divine future king, the future king that's going to be the king who will forevermore let there be no more barrenness and no more weeping. Samuel, out of this brokenness, out of desperation, is the child that has been given out to God so that he can utter in this different age. She says, not your will, God, but not my will, God, but your will be done. There's no bitterness in this prayer. You might understand that if in this holy place that she pours out her heart, he should be like in the book of Psalms. You know, the Psalms, there's, a lot, there's more bitterness in this book of Psalms in some of her prayers, right? You can tell. David's like, hey, crush my enemies. Or, hey, God, they, they, they're like jackals around me. Put them down. You know what I mean? You can hear the bitterness in David's prayer. But there's no bitterness in Hannah's prayer. She prays a prayer that says, God, your will be done. Then I love this. She says, the woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. It seems to me that to say that if you cast your burden on the Lord and you do so in faith, it changes you physically. It changes you psychologically. If you do it in faith that you are fearfully and wonderfully made and we are emotional and psychological creatures and this poor woman who's been off of food and evidently depressed has found the antidote to the depression of her soul and spirit and seemingly her body by casting her cares on concerns upon the Lord. Now guys, I don't want to make light of any psychological issues. And I know it's way more complicated than that. Depression, all that stuff is way more complicated than that. I'm fully aware of that. But there does seem to me a very important lesson here, an extraordinary lesson, a very important lesson, and it's a lesson that what can happen to us when we truly cast our cares in utter faith upon the Lord. It asks us the question of who are you serving? What are you living for? What is it that you ultimately want? And it seems to me that Hannah has understood something. That in the end, her purpose in being in this world her purpose, though she did not fully understand what the purpose was, she didn't fully understand what Samuel would become and the importance of Samuel within historical redemptive history. She understood this, that her purpose was to live for the glory of God. Her purpose was to live in such a way, in such a manner that no matter what circumstances may be, the worst of circumstances, that God receives the glory. I think Hannah understood that. See, there comes this beautiful, psychological, physical transformation that occurred to her when she stopped saying, God, here's my need, here's my desire, let me just cast it upon you. I want your work, your desire, my joy is found in your glory. And no longer than you're burdened by saying, okay, for me to be happy, for me to have joy, for me not to be depressed, I gotta have X, Y, and Z. But instead of saying, if I trust that whatever you give me, God, is good enough for your glory, for you to be lifted up, and that's all that I care about, then how much freedom do I possess? This is why I talk about the Christian life is a win-win. Because if you truly believe in all of your heart that you are fearfully, wonderfully made, and there is a sovereign God who's seeking 
the best for his glory and he's allowing whatever happens in your life for those purposes. And you see, that is what's best anyway. And there's eternity of enjoying that with him. Then whatever happens on this earth, whatever happens on this earth is worth it. Do you hear that? That changes you completely. The stress level, the anxiety level, the, the depression level, all this stuff that all of a sudden goes from, okay, it's all on me to make myself happy. It's all on me to figure out a way to be happy. It's all on me to accomplish these things I need to accomplish to make myself happy. To all of a sudden be like, God, you're just gonna do what you do and what you do makes me happy. It just places on Christ and not upon you. And it's freeing. It sets you free. Now, once again, please hear me very well. I am not making light of true depression. I am not making light of dark times. I am not making light of dark seasons of the soul. I am not at all. But I'm stating a theological truth that we need to find ourselves grounded in. Do you hear me? When she understood that biblical joy Biblical joy can be hers as she glorifies God. When we understand the first question, Westminster Confession of Faith, the first question in the Catechism is this, what is the chief end of man? That's the first question of Westminster. Does anybody know the answer? What is the chief end of man? Good job. People are like, well, how do they know that? When I was in, uh, growing up in the church I grew up in, that was actually something that I had to memorize before I was able to like, like go up to the next grade level. And then my seminary made me memorize the whole thing word for word. But Westminster Confession of Faith says the first question was the chief end of men is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. When you understand that, when you understand that this is of utmost importance, this is our purpose, and that all these things, all the bad things that happen to us when you lose a loved one, that there's a reason for it. When you have cancer, there's a reason for it. When you are barren, there's a reason for it that God will be glorified in it. And you can enjoy God in it. That in, I'm not saying that makes light of it, I'm saying it gives purpose to it. Do you hear me? And when we enjoy God forever, when we worship him, delight in him, he is most glorified. The third state of Hannah that I want you to see is this, three, Hannah realizes that God's purposes are greater than hers. It's four years later, Little boy is weaned, roughly four, four is what the scholars think. She goes to Shiloh, she fulfills her vow. Now I can understand some of you are saying, how could she do that? I mean, she has this little boy that she's been praying for forever, once this little boy, she has him for four years, how in the world could she possibly give him up? How can a mother do that, right? I mean, you gotta be thinking that too, right? I mean, I, 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 my son, he's five and a half, I'm like, most of the time, I don't wanna give him up. I'm just kidding, I, I don't <laughs> But how could, he, how could a mother do that? How can he leave him with strangers that she doesn't know? I know this is a hard thing to understand for us in the 21st century because kind of vows for us have kind of become a little lower on this. You know, what's most important is not keeping on word. It's most important seemingly to do what we think is right or feeling good for us. But for them, vows were of the utmost importance. If you made a vow, you kept it. It was sacred. Vows were meant to be kept and Hannah knew that, so she made a vow. But not only are vows meant to be kept, Hannah knew two powerful truths about children. Number one, they're meant to be arrows in God's quiver. 
right? Number one, the first powerful truth about children are children are meant to be arrows in God's quiver. What that means is Psalm 127 verse four, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Jim Elliot wrote these words to his parents. Remember how the psalmist described children? He said that they were arrows. What are arrows for but to shoot? So with the strong arms of prayer, draw the bowstring back and let the arrows fly, all of them straight at the enemy's hosts. Right? I love that. He's telling his parents this. It's just so cool. Let, let me go. Send me out, mom and dad. Hannah was giving up Samuel as a Nazarite vow. This is what Ligon Duncan said a Nazarite vow is. Nazarite provide an Old Testament picture of what every New Testament disciple should be. The Nazarite is a picture of someone who is kingdom-minded, someone who is concerned for the things that concern God, someone who is concerned to advance God's kingdom. The Nazarite is a picture of someone who is consecrated to God, who is devoted to God, who is given over to God's service. As a Nazarite, he's meant to be a God-treasuring person. That was the vow that Hannah made, was a Nazarite vow. That was symbolized by not cutting of his hair. Anybody else, really quick Bible trivia. Who else made a Nazarite vow? Bob Baptist, and who else? I heard it over here. Samson. Two other people who made Nazarite vows. It's this idea symbolized by not cutting of the hair, that saying, I'm consecrated, I'm set apart, God, my life is yours, whatever you want. I'm kingdom-minded, which, by the way, every one of us as Christians, as we make a vow to follow Jesus, that's to be the vow. So don't cut your hair. I'm just kidding. You can cut your hair. But we're consecrated, we're set apart. And what Hannah knew was the powerful truth that we, our children, her children, our children, are meant to be quivers in God's, uh, arrows in God's quiver. That he'll be sending them out to be kingdom advancers in this world. <clears throat> Two, the second powerful truth about children is if you love them well, then the thing that you most want for them is for them to be a godly man or woman. That's what Hannah wanted most for all her son. She wanted her son to be a godly man. That four-year-old boy, she's prepared to do anything to ensure that this four-year-old boy would become a godly man. She's willing to send him to the temple, maybe away from bad influences like his cousins, maybe bad influences like his, his I don't know what you would call it, his second mother? I don't know. <laughs> kind of, because there are two, I don't know what you call that. He wanted him more than anything to know who God is and be somebody set, set, dedicated, set apart for God. I wonder this morning, what are, your, what are you working towards with your children? What do you want for them? What is your chief concern? Well, I wonder what you're willing to make hard sacrifices in terms of this world order to ensure that your children turn out to be godly, to be trained in the way of righteousness. And I say this, but this is really for me. I struggle so desperately in this. I mean, we all have dreams. Like, part of me, you kind of want to live vicariously through your kids, right? So, like, that thing that you didn't quite accomplish, you know, like being a star golfer or NBA basketball player, you know, you're like, my kid can do that. <laughs> or you want them to live a better life than you've lived, maybe. You know, that was always the dream of my parents. Do work harder, be smarter, do, do better at school because you gotta do better than what I did. And we have these dreams set apart. Don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to put down any of the dreams you have for your children. But can I ask you first and foremost, do you first and foremost care that they're godly men and women? Is that your chief concern, that they know Jesus and they treasure Jesus and they live a life full of the peace and joy and righteousness that comes from a lifelong adventure relationship with Jesus? 
Or do we care more about them doing well at school? Going to gymnastics, doing tennis, having fun. May they, love, may they love Jesus. May that be what defines them. Guys, can I tell you this? And it's, I know it's so hard. I grew up in the Asian culture. So in Asian culture, the, the parents, what they would say is, my son's a doctor. You know, if your son's not a doctor, your daughter's not a doctor, and they're Asian, you're like, you're just a letdown. And that's just reality. You know, or around in this area, if you grew up in this area, it's like, oh, they went to Duke. Oh, okay, I can tell that. They went to Ivy League school. They went to Duke. But if they went to like any other school, they're like, you're kind of, kind of quiet about it. Like, mm. What if instead... What if instead we were like, my son knows Jesus. He serves. He loves the Lord. She loves the Lord. Her devotion, her prayer life, her compassion for people, man, it blows me away. She wants to share the gospel. He wants others to taste and see that God is good. Why do we focus on what he made straight A's? When will we change our priorities for our children? They're four, they're five, they're seven, they're two, they're, they're, they're that age. It's not on them right now. It is on you as parents. And guys, hear this. I, I hope you feel this because this is for me. Because I'm, 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 a, I'm a realist in many ways. I'm practical. You know, I'm a businessman at heart. And as a businessman at heart, I'm like, okay, that's well and good, Lawrence, but they also need to be really successful. Man, let's let success be driven by something totally different. Let's let it be defined by someone totally different. Let's let our children be arrows in God's quiver. Man, that speaks to my heart. Man, I want God to take my kids, rear back, fire away, and go into the darkest of places. Gina doesn't want to hear that right now. But at the same time, she does. God, if you use Josiah and Hudson to take the gospel to the hardest of places, God, will you use them to glorify you? God, will you use the children of Waypoint Church? See, here's the cool thing. Here's the amazing thing. God is faithful in his promises. You saw early on that in the book of Deuteronomy, he says, you will be my people, and I love you, my people, and barrenness will go away. Well, what happened? Well, they walked away. They, didn't, they, they stepped away from the covenant. They became their own gods and said, God, I don't need you. And they had the, this dark period of judges, and there was barrenness. But in the midst of barrenness, symbolic of what was happening to the people, in the midst of that barrenness comes life, only through the grace and mercy of God. God working behind the scenes, even when the people were not pursuing him, he still said, I still love you, and out of my love for you, I still choose to keep a remnant, and I will raise up in you a child, and a child will be born, his name will be Samuel. And through Samuel, I will anoint a king, Saul, and then even after Saul, I will anoint the king David, who was the high king. And through the line of David comes the ultimate king. It comes Jesus to ultimately fulfill the promise of Deuteronomy, the promise he's given to his people, that he will be our God, we will be his people, and one day there will be no more barrenness ever. That no longer will we be trapped, no longer will we be put down, no longer will we feel there's such desperation, and instead we will know what it means to truly be fruitful. Do you hear this? So for those of you who are struggling with barrenness, those of you who are struggling feeling trapped, those of you who are struggling in difficult seasons and in hard times, and those of you who aren't right now but will one day, God is working. Do you believe? Let's pray.